welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. And uh, Dr. Matt, this episode right here yeah. is 313, I believe. Wow. That's nice. crazy, right? Lucky, lucky 313. Is that a lucky number? Sure, it is for us. Because it's the number we're on. Yeah. Hey, so uh, Dr. Matt, clinical psychologist, and uh, we've got a guest today. His name is uh, Blue Robinson. We're going to talk to him in just a second. But we're kind of off air talking about addiction mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of the different kinds of addiction out there. Right. And I think people get hung up on, well, you know, is an addiction addiction? And so I was going to ask you, is there a clinical definition mm-hmm. of addiction? And if so, do you know it? Yeah. So I, I'll, a quick review, I would say when we think about abusing something like a substance, we would say there's use mm-hmm. at the lowest level. The next level is abuse. Uh, then there's dependency, meaning I can't quite get through my day without this. And then at the highest level, we would say there's addiction, which means I can't get through my day without this. And if I don't have it, I experience some sort of withdrawals. You know, I'm I'm not okay if I don't have it. Whereas dependency might be, I I feel like I need it every day or regularly, but I, I don't necessarily go through the withdrawals. And so what's the real difference between dependency and addiction? There is some, but the truth is they're both pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will justify their use of something by saying, well, I'm not addicted. I'm not having withdrawals. But um, people who drink a lot of caffeine, caffeinated sodas, and get a headache if they don't have it the next day, and they're like, oh, I just don't feel very good. I need to go get that. That's a withdrawal symptom. That's an addiction. Now, it may be you know, an addiction to a substance that's not as severe as other substances, but it's still an addiction. Well, that people me- that get depressed as a result of not eating fast food. Uh, I talk to people that uh, sort of have to go through the fast food drive-ins uh, every day. Or have day. to go to the gym. I mean, the, the gym the, could be one as well, probably more on the dependence, but it could be that you you feel a, experience a letdown of not having those positive endorphins. Something and, feels off. Right. Yeah. And so, the day just doesn't seem right. Yeah. But I, I think a Gambling, lot of- Gambling, that's another one. I think a lot of people will downplay an mm-hmm. addiction. And, and I remember that this was like- I knew I was drinking way too much and I was abusing it and it's probably dependent at some point on it and having somebody tell me, you know, that this is not, you know, that's, that's going to kill you. And this was somebody who maybe was obese at the time Mm -hmm. and they were telling me how bad my lifestyle was. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting so mad and going, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. I'm drinking 15 beers, which we can all agree is not good, but I'm also going to the gym. Mm -hmm. I'm also doing these things. And so I'm I'm justifying my drinking. But I remember the hypocrisy I used to think. I was like, wait a minute. When do I get to call you out on yours? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Because you're sitting here coming out. Anytime. You can do it anytime. But but I didn't feel (laughs) just right. But I didn't feel right. And that's not my nature anyways. But I remember thinking in my head and going, that's very Hypocritical. Hypocritical. Well, you brought up the word justification, like both of you were justifying things, right? So that person was likely, you know, having some at least dependency on. So in his head, he might be thinking, yeah, I'm a little little overweight, but I'm not drinking alcohol. And you're thinking, well, you know, I'm in shape because I'm going to the gym, so I can drink the 15 beers. Yes. Yes. Right. So justification is one of the hallmark behaviors of dependency and addiction is people justify their use tremendously. Now, there, 
like I, I know there's not an answer to this, but I want to ask you because I want to hear your thoughts on it. There's there's not a defining moment when something becomes from uh, dependency to addiction. There's not like like you won't know it, will you? Well, not until you experience the withdrawals. You know, not until you try to go without it and realize, oh, I I I don't feel good. Like I remember taking an alcohol class, and this was the best kind of visual or mental description they told me about being an alcoholic mm-hmm. they go imagine a cucumber and i'm like okay cool a cucumber yeah now turn that cucumber into a pickle because basically that's what alcohol is doing yeah it's it, pickling it, you yeah. it is going to turn you into pickle yeah now the reality is is that pickle can never become a cucumber again and so what they were saying is that you need to stop, you know, this was in the early stages, mm-hmm. you know, of classes going, hey, you've got to stop before it turns a pickle because yeah. you'll never be able to go back to a cucumber again. And what they were saying is that you're going to cross that line at some where, point yeah. where, where you can't go back. Creating permanent change and damage. Um, actually, there's uh, some growing evidence that alcoholism changes uh, people's bodies at a cellular level. Now, I don't even know what that means. That means at your most basic building blocks of your body, it changes. And it may even cause genetic changes, and that's where heritability can come in, where we may pass it on to future generations. So thinking we're not doing anyone else damage is probably far from the truth, right? But we've often said in here that we want to break the chain or break the cycle of addiction because mm-hmm. it is inherited and for, for many families, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, yeah. Because we talked about it before, we was like, well, I didn't know that, you know, my grandpa was an alcoholic because no one ever talked about it back then. Right, right. We and just so, said he, you know, he didn't feel well. Yeah, you know. He had to take his medicine. And so so we, I think this should be a good time to remind people to talk to our parents, find mm-hmm. out that, you know what I mean? Especially with someone with me who's got a daughter going to college now. Uh, luckily, they know they're, or unluckily, they yeah. know their dad's an alcoholic. So oh, they that's know lucky. It, that's good. So they that's know it they runs know. in the family. Right. But like on my ex-wife's side of the family, where they're all predominantly LDS, and not that I know of, did they have any aunts or uncles that had addiction in there? But- Chances but are, chances are extra high in that sort of family culture that they wouldn't want to talk about it. Right. And I can tell you in my family history where I have very active LDS parents and extended family, we still have folks that have really suffered from, and in one case, an uncle who died from alcoholism. So, you know, it's very important to have that conversation. I would broaden that conversation for our audience and say that, you know, addiction, you know, substance abuse that should be part of the conversation of a broader mental health conversation. Like, well, you know, does anxiety or types of anxiety, depression, Depression. do those things run in our family? Because as we've talked so many times on this show, those go hand in hand with abuse Mm -hmm. of substances because we self-medicate with, we might be self-medicating with Jack Daniels or, or uh, pills, but it might also be sugar and caffeine and, chocolate bars and things like that. So, you know, talking about broadly, you know, what is, what runs in our family, people have gotten used to talking about like heart disease, like, okay, if great grandpa and grandpa, yeah, breast cancer, these kinds of things that are very seen as very physical diseases, they don't seem ego threatening to us. They don't make us feel, you know, like, like, oh, there's something wrong with us, but it's, Change starts at home, and if we really want to change the stigma of mental health and substance abuse, um, addiction and recovery, if we want to change that, it has to start with being brave enough to talk about those things at home and just say, what what are we at risk for in our family? Maybe none of us should really indulge in bacon 
or drink alcohol. You know, maybe we could get down and depressed. And so we might want to learn some skills for that. You know, we need to know not just the cancers and the heart disease conversation, but the other stuff too. And, and I think that's why we, one of the reasons we started this podcast was to break the stigma. And I think one way to do that is transparency. And that's yeah. just opening it up. And, you know, I thought I would be a, an example of that. I'm going to let you guys go along on this ride with me as I battle addiction. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to take you the whole way. And hopefully you can see through that that life can get better and a recovery is possible. Yeah. But that's me being honest as much as I can all the time. Right. I, I think people... Uh, you know, Brandon Novak is an example of a guest who is on our show who's a former professional skateboarder and uh, entertainer, uh, the Jackass movies and mm-hmm. things. And he's an example of somebody who now has opened his own recovery center and is trying to get the word out. Um, on a local level, there there's you and some of our other news guests mm-hmm. who've come on the show and are active in the recovery Alema community. Alema Harrington. A uh, huge one, Alema. Randall Carlisle. Randall, yep. And so folks like yourself on on this, you know, the, have this local outreach, this ability for people to recognize and go, oh, I, I didn't know Casey struggled with anything. And it, you've come on this, sh- you've created a show where you can share that. And then we have a tremendous guests who come on every week and share their story. Well, I know I'm, I'm not a trailblazer and I started this because it was going to help out my recovery. What do you mean you're not a trailblazer? Well, well I'm going to introduce you to a real trailblazer. Okay. okay. His name is Blue Robinson. Blue, how are you? Hey, doing great, guys. And Blue started Addict to Athlete mm-hmm. in 2011. And we're going to find out how we got to that point. But we're going to find out where the story of Blue begins in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist and not the only therapist in the room. No, not even close. Blue Robinson, uh, a therapist and uh, became a therapist after he got sober. Yeah, yeah. Took we're gonna, the path. We're going to find that uh, more about that story in just a bit. But uh, where does the story of Blue Robinson begin? Oh, back in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota in the year of our Lord, 1975, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah, just a year younger yeah, than me. Yeah, we're not too far apart. But uh, no, uh, I come from an interesting mixed family, I'm telling you. My mother got married when she was 14 years old. Ooh. So she was a kid having kids. Mm-hmm. And you know, back then, there was there was not a lot of like family support for her, obviously. Things couldn't have been going too well at her home if she's like, I'm blowing this popsicle stand and going to go get married at 14. So um, she got married at 14. Got married at 14. I saw a picture of her just recently, and I'm like, she's a baby. I, 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 have, a, I have a 20-year-old, and I have an 18-year-old. And I'm thinking, when they were 14, they, they wouldn't even do their own chores, let alone Be handle a marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And so that turned into a life of marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce. She got married and divorced six times throughout mm. you know, her, her little experience here on earth. And through that process, poverty and abuse cycles and all kinds of chaos. I mean, moving 22 times before I was 18, there were times we didn't even unpack our boxes before we moved again. And so we were the quintessential like poverty stricken family. Um, was it just you and your mom or did you have siblings? Oh, heavens no. Yeah. The, the first marriage was a product of my oldest brother and sister. And it was awesome because it was a, they're, they're half Polynesian. So our family pictures are awesome. They got these two Polynesian kids, and these two very white kids. It was pretty, pretty funny. And like, <laughs> people are like, who are these people? Um, and we all have different last names. 
once uh, that marriage, because 14, you don't know what you're doing. No. And that ended in, in a pretty severe, you know, some turmoil. And she married another guy who was an alcoholic from Las Vegas. And he was abusive, obviously. And she's still a young mom. And we had, she had my sister who was just oldest, older than me. And then she met my dad in some obscure place. And he moved her to Grand Forks where he was, serve, he was serving in the military. And, and uh, I guess there's a big military base out there. But she, he moved her out there when I was born. And in the heat of an argument and a drunken stupor, she packed all of us kids up and drove us back here to Utah. And that's kind of where we bounced around for years, uh, in and out of uh, horrible relationships with her, abusive stepfathers, carry scars on my body from, from like, very physically abusive stepdads. And one day we decided, I'm done with this. And Now, you forward. speak about it as just so matter of fact. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just like you're- Told it a few times. Yeah, reading uh-huh. the back of a book. But I, I want to hear, what does that do to uh, Young Blue? You know what I mean? Bouncing yeah. back and forth. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a crazy thing. Um, and you've heard this before in some of your, your previous podcasts. When you're, when you're in uh, adolescent age and you're going to these elementary schools and stuff, there's such critical learning that happens there. But I'd never finish and start a school year in the same place. And so I missed heavy aspects of my education. I remember third grade specifically, starting to learn, you know, twos and threes and four timetables and then moving. And then I move into this next you know, little elementary school class and they're already on nines, tens, elevens and twelves. And I was like, I'm screwed. Yeah, I missed five, six, and seven. Seriously, man. I'm like, I didn't have those down very well. And it turned into learning disabilities and, and issues. And, you know, you get that with, you know, sprinkling the abuse factors and the chaos that was home. And it turns into a very strong recipe for future addictions to take hold. So I'm guessing, you know, when you're that young age and it's very important to your growth and you're moving in and out, when you go to a new school, you're probably not so much concerned with the homework as you are fitting in or being the new kid. Very and so true. there's probably a lot of eyes on you at all times. And, and, and if you're not used to that or you don't like that, that seems like that would be its own version of hell. Kind of the personal, you mentioned the academic, you know, falling behind, which oh, yeah. totally makes sense. But, you know, a lot of times when parents are in survival mode, as I assume your mom was, uh, we don't spend as much time thinking about our kids' personal and and social development. Mm-hmm. But I would actually argue that that's more important in the elementary years than the academic stuff because if you feel grounded in who you are by the time you hit puberty and adolescence, if you feel comfortable in, in social interactions and you're behind in some other things, gra- granted, I'm talking about people that don't have a, a neurodevelopmental issue, um, you can catch up on that education. You can be like, okay, I can finally kind of get those times tables down and I can learn my reading and writing a little bit better. Um, but I think you were probably, you know, behind in all three categories. Absolutely. And that was part of the problem was, you know, I think getting married that early in life, she didn't ever have an experience as a kid herself. And so she was always in that state of wanting to recapture the youth, which put us at a huge disadvantage. I mean, there'd be times she'd leave for for weeks on end. Mm-hmm. My oldest sister would kind of care for us. And that turns into that system where your oldest sibling, who's the most responsible, takes on the motherly role. Parentified. And parentified. parentified yep. mm-hmm. yes. Absolutely. And, and it, it did end up that way. And it's hard because, you know, here's this nurturing person that's supposed to, by, by all means of the word mother, show you some of that, that nurturing that just never came. And so it did. It messed with us a lot. Plus the fact that we have all these men coming in and out of our lives that are abusive, that are only there temporarily. So me seeing the role of, of a future father myself, like I thought there's no way. 
And that did that cause a lot of issues. The biggest component I had to deal with was, was lying and manipulating because I needed to make friends fast. And so if I could tell the right story and I learned from the best because she, she, she was a storyteller, I could make friends fast. And it didn't matter what I said or how grandiose I made myself just to get friends. Cause I knew, you know, T minus four or five months, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And it got sticky when we could pay the rent a few. Long. I'm like, <laughs> got to own up on some of these stories. But it ended up kind of being a. a I really don't know Michael Jackson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was. It was. Some of those were that grandiose. And the problem was, I look back at it now, and I think how much of my childhood was fictitious with me just trying to imagine myself into a position of relationship building versus, you know, what really happened, which was a lot of of just chaos and lying and manipulating and hiding. I was very shy growing up, obviously. I mean, you're, you're, getting, you're getting smacked and beaten up as a kid. The last thing you want to do is go tell your teacher or anything of that kind of stuff. And so we did. We just kept everything quiet until I decided one day at age 18 that I'm, I was done. And it really did throw a wrench into our relationship. So when you were growing up at your young age and you said your mom would go off for two weeks at a time and your sister would take care of everybody, was there alcohol in the house? Was alcohol and drugs a part of your childhood or was it, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, my mother learned from her mother that, again, that, that, that cyclic addiction, right, that as long as it had a prescription on it, it was fair game. And so very addicted to you know, medications and could justify, tell the cows come home why she needed it. Um, and there was some alcohol, but she, she would more bring men into our lives that were alcoholics, not so much herself. She did a lot of that prescription abuse type stuff to make it very subtle. I mean, she had it together in a lot of ways, but we saw behind the mask. And so it was very much a part of our lives. So when was the first time you tried alcohol or a substance? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, same same kind of age as most people right there in the teens. You know, I think it was 14 years old when my mother and stepdad. You know, most people don't do that. I yeah, mean, a lot of them I, earlier, you yeah. know, addicts, we, 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 we all are in a different, different yeah. camp. But yeah, I mean, that's when most of us do try. But most kids don't. Yeah, totally. Well, and they would always go out to Wendover. So every weekend uh, from age about 13, 14 on, they were gone all the time. They'd leave a Friday and they'd come back, you know, late Sunday night. And so they're leaving me home alone. And so obviously my home kind of became the hub of like all the friends and stuff. And this, it gradually turned into that because what else is there to do? You only play Super Mario for so long mm-hmm. and then you got to start exploring. So that just kind of became the pattern. The unsupervised house, right? All, that's one parenting tip I always tell everybody is like, find out which one of your kids' friends has the unsupervised house. You mm-hmm. need to know where that is because when they say, oh, I'm going over to so-and-so's house, you need to know that means there's no parents' home. Absolutely. And it's not that kids are bad. Kids are good. But you're, you're curious mm-hmm. and you're trying to get your needs met. Idle and, hands. And you don't have, a, you know, history or knowledge of how to help get your needs met in a healthy way when you're 14 years old. And so, yeah, those unsupervised homes become kind of the, the party house. When yeah. you first tried drugs or alcohol, did you like them? N- not at first. I mean, it was kind of a crazy thing because even though it was kind of starting to happen, um, I didn't like the way it made me feel. But I liked the social interaction of it. Well, it comes with a certain amount of uh, credit. I mean, Mm -hmm. social credit. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you got the house where the kids can come over and you got access to it. I mean, there's there's a cool kid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it was the whole gamut. I mean, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what was your drug of choice? Which is kind of a funny question because it's like what was ever available? Like, I really wasn't one that zeroed in on one thing specifically. 
I mean, any, everything from, from LSD to methamphetamines to alcohol to THC, it was all a fair game. It was whatever we could get our hands on. Obviously, the easiest, most accessible was alcohol. But yeah, it just, I never really liked the loss of control. But I also knew that it, it filled a certain void, which was I'm no longer neglected. I'm, I'm seen now. And I didn't realize that was the core issue within me was that, you know, I formed a really strong sense of this must be my fault that, that even my own mother doesn't care enough to be like, are you okay? Check in. Like, do you have homework? I mean, that wasn't even a, a go-to question in our home. So once I felt like I've got a connection and that neglect was being filled up with this social realm, man, I clamored onto that and held on as tight as I could. Well, it becomes, I mean, for lack of a better term, a family. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, people who want to know where are we at this weekend? What's going on? Let's mm-hmm. get a hold of Blue because Blue's got the place he's or the he's home. got the hookup. Well, mm-hmm. we talk about connection on this show, I mean, almost every week. Yeah. But, you know, connection is a therapeutic thing. Mm. But it's also kind of a natural drive. Like, Basic necessity. In fact, there for- are disorders for people who don't seem to strive for any social connection. That's odd enough that we consider it a disordered behavior <laughs> in our culture. Yeah. And so uh, adolescence, you're at the peak of wanting to have social connection, right? Like that's part of developing your sense of identity and who you are. And so absolutely that's a void that has to be filled. In fact, I would put it in the teen years as a drive. It is a drive. You wake up in the morning and you're looking for social connection. And when I find an adolescent who comes in for therapy who isn't, that really sparks my attention. You're like, oh, there's a problem here because that's a normal. Teenagers will sneak out. They'll do whatever it takes to have that social connection because it builds a sense of self. And uh, it's funny that if there were, I don't know how many teenagers listen to this show, but if there's a teen out there listening saying, oh, I wish my mom wouldn't check in on my homework so much. But you, you know, you're a, uh, you were praying for it. You were, you you needed that. You Mm -hmm. wanted that. So absolutely. Yeah. It's that connection is a strong driving force. So you're running and gunning pretty much through your high school career. It sounds like, yeah. Any real problems with it or there was no parental supervision at home? So it didn't matter if there was. It didn't matter if there was. I mean, I remember coming home extremely intoxicated and having them look at me and saying nothing. I mean, obviously under the influence of something and having not a care in the world. And it was, and I've always thought about that. Like, why wouldn't they have noticed? Because you look back at the behaviors, it's like, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Slurring words and stumbling downstairs, but they, they just didn't move their needle at that time. And it was really kind of a crazy thing. And so, yeah, no, no, no issues. And by the grace of almighty, I'd never had any legal issues. I, again, I was such a, such a small person and I could fly under the radar with the best of them. So at 18, you said you finally had enough. My mother got divorced for the fifth time, the sixth time, and I'm like, you know, you're you're not a safe person for me. Uh, she moved down to Southern Utah. I kind of took off and did my own thing, and that was hard because I'd never been taught finances or anything. But I, I about age 19 is when I really started getting into into recovery, and um, I decided I was. I was done. And I, I do what it's called, I call it probably a horrible word for it, but I call it, you know, I committed social suicide where I walked away from everyone. And for a guy who's kind of already feeling that neglect, 
the last thing I want to do is abandon what I did have. So at 19, you had the mindset to go, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. Yep. It was, it was Casey, it was crazy. I say, when I walked away from my friends, the people that really were, were staying sick, I was watching their substance use increase. I was watching these relationships start to die. Um, this is when there was no more school in common. It was kind of like, we're adults now. And I didn't want to keep going. I was like, this is stupid. Like, I, I want to have something better. But I didn't know what that better was. So walking away from that, I joked that my friends actually became Monica and Chandler and Ross and all those guys. <laughs> I friends. I had an hour, two episodes with them every day. And it sucked because then I was like, this is, is this really worth it? There was times I'm like, maybe I should just call so-and-so up to see because it'd be cool just to hang out with somebody but you just said something that I think a lot of addicts go through is where, you know, it, it's the abstinence mindset where they stop mm-hmm. and then they get sober and then they sit there and they go, well, this sucks too. Well, now what? You know what I mean? Now and, what? And, and so that's what you go. It was like, well, at least here I was talking to people, having fun and having connection here. I'm not doing the drugs, but this sucks too. Yeah. A- abstinence without a plan brings its very own brand of, of difficult mm-hmm. life. Oh yeah. It's like purgatory because again, you, you, you question everything. Like, is this going to be possible? And so I worked some dumb jobs, but kind of you know, created this little bit of a work ethic because I needed to take care of myself. And I was living with my sister for periods of time and things, but I just never had any roots anywhere. Um, and then I pushed through to about age 21 and I got a job that I would say saved my life. And I'm a high school dropout at this point too. Like uh, and when I stopped going to school, didn't even move their needle. They were just like, yeah, it makes sense because all your siblings have, right? At what age did you drop out? I dropped out my the beginning, just the very beginning of my senior year. Just walked out. I'm done, you know, because I was, uh, my grades were slipping. I this I didn't realize that at the time, but this learning disability was kicking in because I just didn't know, you know. And there were so many things. Understanding now that some of the childhood abuse has an effect on academics, like they did some research on like you know problematic homes and having problems in mathematics or, you know, English. And I'm like, well, there's double whammy for me. So I felt I was dumb, walked away from school, got a job. And as long as I was busy, no one cared. So you took a job that you said saved your life. Yeah. So at age 21, and, and I can talk about this now because I'm sure that they're fine with it, but it was years ago, I lied on the application said I was a high school graduate so I could work at a youth treatment center as a courier, just a kid, a guy who just drives these kids who are in youth treatment to their doctor's appointments. They're, you know, take them to the airport, they fly out, just take them and just, you know, do the basic travel thing. And as I- Basically a tech. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was awesome. One of my aspects of that job was to take these kids to 12-step meetings. And I had no idea what those were. So my very first you know, couple of days in there, I'm taking these kids to this adult 12-step meeting, which is a whole other podcast. But- I go there and I'm like, whoa, what are all these people talking about? What is that? Alcoholics Anonymous? What is this? And I just sat there and listened. And I, and I, I really didn't need it at that time because I'm like, there, they have things for this? I had no idea. And the kids weren't listening, obviously, but I was. And so I started volunteering to take these kids to this meeting every day. So I did probably about 400 meetings out of 400. I mean, does it make sense? Like I didn't do the 90 and 90. I did the 400 and 400. <laughs> and I learned a ton and it helped immensely. But it was kind of a crazy thing because I'm like, I'm learning these these tools and how people are doing this. And I never had therapy, never had treatment or anything. You know, I never had any of and that And you're stuff. still sober at this time. Yeah, yeah. And it gave me purpose because I'm like, well, shoot, okay, if I'm not the only one out there. 
Um, but then after a while, a guy took me under his wing and he's like, Blue, you seem to be really good at like helping these kids and you seem to like really get into their recovery. He's like, there's a new program starting at the University of Utah. It's called the, you know, the School of Alcohol and, and Treatment, whatever. I can't remember the name of it. But it's like, there's a program up there. You can get your license, you know, substance abuse disorder counselor license if you take like a six month class. And I'm like, I guess I better graduate high school. <laughs> and so as I was starting to transition, I met my wife. She was a rec therapist at that school. And of course, with me came all the lies and all the manipulations, trying to pretend like you know, someone I wasn't. Um, and she started at this to point, tap the, into that. At this point, nobody, including yourself, really knows who you are. In case you don't know how true that is, man. Right? Oh, yeah. No clue. In fact, when I met my wife and she started figuring out, hey, you're talking a big game, but you have nothing to back it up. She's like, you need therapy. So as we were dating, she got me into therapy. It was a BYU therapist. I wish I could find this guy and shake his hand. The very first session I had with this guy, his name was Arlen. And uh, I go there and I show up and he's like, well, what are you here for? And I tell him, I'm like, well, I've you know been addiction for this many years. My wife, my, my future wife, who I'm hoping that will you know, take my hand in marriage, thinks I need this. And I tell him this whole story, what I just told you, but more detail. And at the end of that, he's like, I think I know what the issue is. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, you have no idea who you are. And I was like, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. I gave him the good day, sir. And I walked out. Because I'm like, that's the dumbest thing you can say. It's a rhetorical question. It can't be answered. So I go to my, my, my fiance, right, at the time. And she's like, how would it go? I'm like, good, I'm done. She's like, you're done? <laughs> like, After one session. I'm done. Yeah, one and done. Good. And I told her what happened. I'm like, well, he asked me a dumb question at the end. It's just rhetorical. I know therapists. They just, you know, talk you in circles. And she's like, well, what do he say? He asked me who I was. And she's like, well, who are you? And I'm like, don't you start. Almost like that goodwill mo- hunting <laughs> yeah. moment, right? Yeah. It's not your fault. Yeah. It's, it's she, not your fault. <laughs> it's how it felt, man. And I'm like, well, really, who are you? And she told me, man. And I, for the first time, here's this person standing in front of me that knew her morals, her values, her beliefs, her strengths, her weaknesses. And she told me everything. And I'm like... I'm 21 years old now, and I have no idea. It scared me. So I had to go back and apologize to Arlen and be like, I guess I do need some help. And it was the best thing, man. My first year of like real work, the first six months I did by myself. And then I said, hey, Arlen, we're getting married. He's like, you better bring her in here. So the next six months with me and her, we had a whole year of therapy before we got married. And I'm telling you, man, never looked back. I'm the only member of my family that's never been divorced. All my siblings have been married, divorced five, six times as well. That cycle continued. Not me. Oh, I, I broke it and I figured it out. That's when I discovered, oh, this is neglect. And I, if I neglect my own needs, I'm going to project that on everybody else, thinking that I don't deserve to, to love or to be loved. So the whole thing was kind of this awakening. And I took the guy up on that offer, got my, 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 my high school diploma. I was supposed to be a class of 94, graduating class of 2000. Right? <laughs> you did it. And Better late going. than ever. Just kept going. So uh, what's amazing about Blue's story is that, you know, a lot of times people will tune into this podcast and people are waiting, waiting for a rock bottom. Mm -hmm. They're looking for that pinnacle moment where somebody says, I've had enough, or I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Or and there's a catalyst to to get them to go into recovery or look for a better way of life. Mm -hmm. Now, this is just me, and and Blue, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems, and, and I don't... It seems like your whole childhood was a rock bottom. It was. Yeah. I think I think rock bottoms, the way they're talked about in addiction and recovery, are, a, that's a good word, catalyst to insight. And if you can come to that insight without a catastrophic rock bottom, all the better. 
But I agree that you probably were sick and tired of being sick and tired your whole life up to, you know, you'd had so much. I mean, if you think about, I know you've thought about this, but if our listeners think about what you're saying, you never had stability. Uh, You never really had physical or emotional safety for very long periods of time. Um, You never had the uh, adults in your life teach you how to get your needs met in a healthy way. And I can't overemphasize how important that is in our development, getting your needs met. And there are so many needs that a human being has from the very, very physical ones to things that are more emotional and psychological. And we can't easily do that on our own. That's why we have mentors and parents and other people like that in our lives and kids who move around all the time that are transient, that are being raised by other children like older siblings. Um, They're in that survival mode. And so I think it's interesting that you came to that insight probably after a lifetime of just feeling tired of not fitting in, not knowing how to meet your own needs. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it in a nutshell too. I mean, even early marriage was crazy, uh, for years, uh, until we moved out of our first apartment to our home. Uh, I had this can of V8 juice in the fridge and my wife's like, what is this? It's been interesting. We moved in. I'm like, well, that's for spaghetti. And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah. Cause here's my scarcity mindset, poverty that I'm like, I've always had this can just in case you needed to make spaghetti with it. She's like, you don't use V8 juice. For spaghetti, I'm like, that's what you put on them. Because that's what we had. I mean, we, again, we were poverty stricken. And my wife started crying. Yeah. She's like, what happened to you? Yeah. It's all those things in your head about the scarcity of it all. The, the first time we had an argument, I'm thinking, okay, well, she's leaving. Because that's what my mom did. Whenever my mom raised her voice, it was, we're leaving. She, she raises her voice, you guys start packing. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm like you know, this, this, this beaten puppy. And she's like, we can have arguments and disagreements and we can work through them and resolve the conflict and be stronger because of it. And I remember one time, it was by about a year into our marriage, um, my mom tried to put a bill of a cell phone in my name and I got this this bill in the mail for like 800 bucks, you know, back in the day when cell phones were really expensive. And I called the company. I'm like, this is a mistake. I don't have, I don't have a cell phone. And the person kind of like let me in on the fact that someone transferred it into my name and it was my mother. And I'm like, I'm done. Like, what is this? So I call her and she's lied to her teeth that it wasn't me. Because I now put me in hot water too, because I have a history of not being honest. My wife's like, do you have a secret cell phone? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> Where would I keep it? I don't even know how to use a cell phone. 2001, right? Yeah, no, I got you. Yeah. And I call her up and I'm like, what is, what is this? And she's like, oh, it's probably your sister. I'm like, the guy told me it was you. And she like trying to gaslight and tell me all of what I don't know. And finally got to the point where I'm like, I'm done. This is where I draw my line. And I said, and I started to lean into her a little bit about why would you do this? And you know, this is a horrible thing that you're trying to put me through. And she said, you be careful who you're talking to or else I'll never speak to you again. I said, be, uh, you be careful. Cause I'll honor that. She flipping hung up on me. So I do what everybody did back in you know 2001. I wrote a letter and it was one of those things It's the funniest thing, man, but I flipping wrote this letter about calling her to the carpet. I'm like, she needs to know where I'm coming from. I'm done neglecting my my emotional stability, hoping that one day I might have this amazing relationship with her. This is never going to happen. So I need to be willing to sacrifice a relationship that didn't even truly exist at the time. So I wrote this letter. It was like five, six pages. I had folded up. It was like four stamps to send. And I knew when I had dropped that in the mailbox, it was going to make some kind of headway. Seven years went by, nothing. 
birthdays, holidays. She didn't didn't say a word to me for seven years. I had kids during this time. I had my own. I mean, I suffered through school. I graduated. I was the first one to ever graduate college in my whole family. No one's ever done that. All these, all these things, right? Go to my master's degree. Seven years later, I get a, I get a call from my sister saying that mom's in town. And I'm like, do you think she wants to come to my graduation? I'm graduating with my master's degree. I said, I can ask her. She calls me up. My mom called me up first time in years, calls me up. And she says, oh, I heard you're graduating college. I'm like, yeah, I'm walking. Is it the Maverick Center, the East Center, whatever that is over there? Yeah, right? Maverick. I said, well, I'm graduating there. She's, and I said, it's going to be at seven o'clock on the, or eight, nine o'clock at this day. It'd be cool to have you up there. She, I mean, she, dude, come on. No one's ever, she's never seen this. And she's like, well, I fly out of, out of the airport at like four. I'm like, that's great. Shoot, you could walk to the airport from there in, in you know, an hour and a half. Um, she's like, okay, yeah, we'll see. And never showed up. Oh. And I, I, I do expect that, right? But I'm like, that sucks. But at that time, I did look up, I see my wife, I see my kids. They're just little stinkers back then. And I'm like, that's really all I need. So up until literally she passed away last August, there was no relationship. I mean, it was very superficial. And my wife's like, after she passed away, she's like, he, she asked me, how hard is it? I'm like, I've already mourned her death. Like, I almost felt guilty because I didn't. But it like, she just never happened, right? But then I'm looking at my kids and I'm thinking, how can you not nurture your children? How could you choose to walk away from this? My first daughter was born. I carried her around on a pillow. My wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't want to hurt this kid. Like, I love this thing so much. She's like, they're kind of rubbery. You're not going to hurt them. But that's not where my mind was. Like, dads hurt kids. And so if I'm a dad now, I have the potential to hurt this thing. So I had to really reshape my mindset on this. You know, again, years later, I go into a water park, walking up the stairs and the ramps with my two little girls. Maybe one was probably seven. The other one was probably five. And I'm standing in line. Also, my daughter touches my back. And she's like, Dad, what's this scar from? And right when she touched it, I knew. I'm like, ooh, how am I going to explain to my daughter that that came one day when I disobeyed a stepdad? And he went a little hard on me that time. So I had to like turn around and say, oh, yeah, let me tell you about when that happened. I had to share this experience of like, your wow. dad's around, he's, he bleeds. And she's like, she's this little seven-year-old, give, give me compassion. Like, I can't believe that would happen to you. Like, it was just kind of a cool thing. I thought, I'm not going to hide this stuff from my kids. I'm going to tell them about how it's a privilege to have them and how parenting out of inconvenience has a huge reward on the other end. We have a great relationship with my kids. And it's one of those things, Casey, that's like, I would have never have guessed when all that stuff was going down that I could have the life I have now simply by breaking the mold and doing really hard things. And I think you're doing amazing things. And I'm going to say something that might not be popular opinion, but like in my heart, I feel like your mom's proud of you. And you've also got to understand that your mom was also an addict. 100%. You know, and she was probably trying to do the best she could. And this is a lady who got married at 14 and divorced at 16. Kids having kids. So I got to think that your mom, and I'm giving chills, is up there and damn proud of you, Blue. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? But that's the thing that we don't understand. We don't understand what the other person's going through. And, and you know, like when you look at your kids, I do the same thing. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I stood above my kids and said, hey, look, dad's not going to drink tomorrow. It's going to be different. And I meant it. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow I was drinking. And it and, and, and didn't mean that I didn't love them because I love my kids with all my heart. But that disease is so ferocious and so insidious. It's just, it, it's, it's, and, and so I, I, I got to, because I see you getting emotional, Blue, and I got to think that, your mom's proud of you, man, mm-hmm. and, and your family's proud of you. But you had to do 
what had to be done. And that was to break the cycle and put up boundaries to protect you and your family. Yeah. I had to keep him safe. And, and that's the thing too, is, is, you know, she did, she attacked the things that were precious, but I also knew that that was her own loss too. I mean, she didn't get to see two, like my youngest son, she never even laid eyes on him. And so I thought that's kind of a sad thing for her. And so I had to also kind of step out and say, there's a reason why, I mean, kids don't get married at 14 unless there's something going on. Mm-hmm. And so I can't blame her for all that. The only thing I truly wanted from her was just a, I'm sorry. And her way of showing that was giving me the space that I needed to create my own. So I, I'm with you on that. I hold no animosity towards it. I feel it's sad, but on the same breath, I understand. And I think what you said is absolutely spot on. Let's talk about, we talk a lot about, um, you know, the, uh, the heritability of alcoholism or substance abuse. There's also a term that I'm sure in your line of work, especially uh, intergenerational trauma. Oh, yeah. And that that's a term that is getting a lot of attention, rightfully so these days, trying to understand how trauma, not just behaviorally, but also biologically, can be passed along. These experiences of trauma are can be and often are intergenerational. Your mom struggled with it, and maybe the best way she could try to break that was giving you the space. You certainly have been able to break that by staying married and having healthy relationships with your wife and children. So my question to you is, what influences in your life do you think have been, made the most impact, either people or experiences, for you to break that intergenerational trauma? That's a great question. Um, for me, it was, the, I, I mean, I've got to give my wife, Marissa, when we were dating a, a ton of credit, you know, she was the first one that kind of said, there's something better than what you're giving yourself, you know, to, to offer life. Um, the fact that she was willing to like, let me do the work and not her try and do it for me. Cause there's a lot of women out there that want to save the, the person they're falling in love with, but she couldn't do that. Cause if she would have, I would have let her, I would have totally let her. When she called me out, when she finally decided to discover some of my lies, I was for the first of my life speechless. I couldn't back out of some of the stuff she was accusing me of because it was true. I didn't graduate high school. I don't have these, these accolades. I am, you know, impoverished. I'm all these things. And so her just believing enough in me and a guy that took me under his wing while I was working at that youth treatment center. And I had no idea what this was at the time, <laughs> but he was a bishop and I had no idea what that was. He took me under his wing. He's like, there's something about you. And so just these two people, both of them were coworkers at the time that believed enough in me to say, there's something about you that I think you're kind of hiding from. You should discover that, which is funny. Cause again, I wasn't even a member of the church. And then years later I get called to serve as a bishop and I'm like, what the heck is that? Like, are you serious? <laughs> so I, I look at these things and I'm like, it's, it's that relationship, just that investment. Uh, and, and she did, she put a line in the sand. She's like, I'm not going to wait for you, but I want to support you, but I'm not going to do it for you either. And so that belief was enough for me to know that as I was doing this alone, I had at least someone that understood and could have my back. So it was a, yeah. The power of somebody. A mentor. Believing in us, but not taking over for us. Yeah. But showing the belief in us, especially at critical periods of our our life development. You can't overemphasize the value of that helping a person grow. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. When you think about it, belief and hope, two intangible things. Right. But can mean the world a difference. Oh. And sometimes that's the only thing an addict has. If you pause for a second and you think about what are some moments in my life when somebody showed some belief in me, I promise you that directly after that you did big things. Mm -hmm. You made changes, you made progress, you met goals, 
if you can think to like, was there a mentor, a parent, a friend, somebody who showed belief in me and verbalized that, that boosted me. I promise you, you can map out. And then I accomplished this. And then I did this. It's powerful. Yeah. So Blue, how does that bring us to addict to athlete? Oh man, it's a beautiful marriage, brother. When I first started dating my wife, we got married. Well, I had to go ask her father for her hand in marriage, right? And I remember that was terrifying. That was hard. Yeah. I go walking in and he's, I tell him like, yeah. And he'd heard about my follies, you know, he kind of said, Marissa, be careful with this one. Cause you know, I had, I had a lot of baggage. And when I went and asked him, he's like, okay, I'll give you her hand in marriage. I'll allow this. If you'll come run a marathon with me, I'm like, sweet, done. Right. Her mother gave me a lot longer of a conversation than he did, but I go back and I tell her, I'm like, yeah, he gave, he gave, he gave me the green light. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, I have to run something called a marathon with him. She's like, do you have any idea what that is? I'm like, no. <laughs> she had 26.2 mile run. And I'm like, people do that? What is this? For right? fun? But what I didn't know, Casey, and I don't think even Gary, my father-in-law, knew what he was doing. God, I get emotional. Is that as I was training for this stupid marathon, I told him I'd do with him. It was like the, you know, the 2000 St. George Marathon. I started having this conversation with a guy who's a father figure that I never had. So he'd wake me up at the dawn, at the break of dawn. We'd go run two miles away to some church to play basketball and run back. I'm like, can we just get a ride one way maybe? <laughs> but I had these conversations with a father figure that I never had. And I learned so much from him. And I, it was one of the coolest things. I'm like, this is amazing. So he got to know me. I got to know him. Running, that's when I started realizing that running, there's something here. And I didn't realize this until years later. I started doing races, started having some of those accolades, started feeling part of something. I'm part of a running community. I'm part of this family. I'm doing all these cool things. Uh, and when I got clean, when I got, when I really got sober, I bought a mountain bike um, with all that money. I was working at that youth treatment center and it was wall art for, for a couple months. And one day I just hopped on it and took off and I felt really good as I was riding this bike. I had no idea what I was doing. I was whipping the foothills. These guys pull up. They're like, dude, are you lost? I'm like, yeah, I have no idea where I am. They're like, follow us. They take me down to the trailhead. They're like, we come up here every couple couple of weeks, man. Just kind of come up, you know, Wednesdays and, and Saturdays. But he's like, get a helmet, get a water bottle. Cause I was like, you know, cut off jeans. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I started realizing that that movement, recreation started helping me. And so I'm like, this is kind of a cool thing. I don't have to be an addict anymore. Now I can be a mountain biker. And now I wasn't just a mountain biker. Now I'm a runner. And my wife's a rec therapist, which means she does a lot of therapy through recreation and stuff. And as I was working with, with youth and all this, this stuff, I started thinking there's something to this. And it made me feel amazing. I had something else to talk about other than just my addiction history. So uh, in 2011, I approached my bosses. I was working at the Utah County Division of Substance Abuse as a therapist down there. And um, I caught my clients forging their sign-off sheets saying they attended the 12-step meetings. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, I got busted. I'm like, that's addict behavior, man. And they're like, it doesn't work for us. And, and they were in drug court. So part of their program was you had to do at least three outside meetings other than your, your, your IOP program. And there was nothing else out there. And I got, I remember in school that I heard a guy speak and said, if you see a, a hole in your community, it's your responsibility to fill it. And I'm like, recreation helped me. What if I started a, a subgroup addict to athlete? What if we trained them to run a 5K, you know, have them come? And I went and talked to my bosses and they're like, Ooh, I don't know. This is weird. And I'm like, I know, I know CPR though. If anyone passes out, I, I got them, right? And it was a cool thing, man. We, we ran our very first race. I, tried, I went down to my group of 28 clients and I'm like, who wants to do this? Only five raised their hands. So these five clients come up, four guys, one girl. And we trained for this thing called the Chase the Mayor 5K. It was a little run started in downtown Provo, literally right out the door of our group room right there on University Avenue. And so we'd run that little course. And as I was running with them, 
all of a sudden they're processing therapy stuff with me. We're running down downtown Provo and they're talking about, you know, their childhood and all these things. I'm like, why are you guys telling me all this therapeutic stuff out here and not in my office? Like we got to, you know, anonymity. There's kind of like, you know, boundaries here. They're like, I don't know. We just feel, and it's one of those things, man. I felt the same thing I was running with my father-in-law. We trained them for that. It was Mayor John Curtis back then. I remember. Yeah. They gave him a two minute head start. And right before we started, everyone handed out these addict athlete shirts. And I'm like, guys, again, I'm told that we can't, we've got to be anonymous. If you guys wear this, they'll know that you're either in recovery or that you had an addiction. Like, we don't care. This is the name of our team. And I was not expecting this. They put them on. They said, go. The mayor takes off. Two minutes later, the team chases them. All but one guy caught the mayor. And the first guy that caught him, his name was Tyson. And as he's running by John, John's like, hey, addict athlete, what's that? So all of a sudden now here's this ex-heroin user talking to the mayor of Provo about his recovery. And he had that conversation with three other people. And so I'm watching him come in. I'm cheering for him. I'm meeting their families. Their families came out to watch them because they're like, there's no way my husband's running a 5K. Like, <laughs> you know, he's, he's a criminal. Like, there's no way. The only thing he runs from is the cops. The cops. Uh-huh. <laughs> they finish. They have great. They give him the medal. They give him the shirts. It was great. I thought, that's cool. One and done. It's good. That next Monday, I get called into my supervisor's office. And I thought, I'm in trouble. I'm like, maybe they did smack the mayor's butt on the way by. I'm in trouble. <laughs> good race, mayor. Yeah. John had contacted the county commissioners, which were my biggest bosses, right? They called them my supervisor and said, whatever this is, John's pretty impressed with it. Like, he wants to support whatever it is. I don't think John realizes how much of an influence he had just by having a conversation. He may not even remember. But that's kind of what gave me the green light to start this program. What I realized is I got trained in a therapeutic modality called EMDR is that running mimics EMDR therapy. It's left, right brain stimulation to process trauma. So as they're running, they're processing. That's why they start talking about this stuff. It made it, it made it like you, it made therapy, like not really feel like therapy. And there was a girl I was training a couple of weeks after that. Her name was Janice and we're running and Janice is like, ah, coach, I want to stop. And I'm like, Janice, let's run to the corner. It's about a half block away. So we run to the corner and I look at her. I'm like, she's still got some speed in her. I'm like, now let's go to that red pickup. So she's like, oh, let's go to the red pickup. Then I'm like, now to the end of the street. And she's like, oh, and she's moaning. We get to the end of the street and she just bursts into tears, just starts bawling. And I'm like, oh, crud, I'm in trouble. And I'm like, are you okay? She's like, why do I do this? I always do this. I give up way before I, I should. I always have more energy than I think. I always have more stamina in, in, in what I'm doing, but I give up on myself. I could run further if I wanted to. And she's having this epiphany of how like in life, she gives up way too early. She gives up on her kids. She gives up on her marriage, gives up on her recovery. She's like, I've got more in my tank. Why am I trying to take the easy way out? So she's having this aha moment you know, up by BYU. And I'm like, oh yeah. So I'm seeing this connection of movement EMDR therapy, something's happening here. And so the ball starts rolling. Um, We get our 501c3 nonprofit status. We do a lot of like, it's all free community resource. Like I told you before, like we're not a sober gym, we're sober community resource. And we branch out. So people wearing their addict athlete shirts, they're running, they're talking to people about recovery. Everyone has got someone that struggles. So they're having these ambassador type moments about sobriety. We grew from that little chapter in Utah County to chapters all throughout the state, one at the state prison. We have two Indian reservations that we're on. Uh, it's just growing because people are seeing the service and the desire to want to like become something else. Addict to athlete, the Roman numeral two is specific because the Roman numeral system doesn't identify zero. So you can never be less than yourself. Like that's enough. And once you add something to it, that becomes the foundation to build. 
And so metaphorically, it's you're moving from an addict now to an athlete. I don't call my, my clients or my athletes addicts. That's part of it. It's not who they are. Just kind of trailblaze a little bit of trying to shift the mindset. And one of the most beautiful things was about two years after that, when we started seeing like Fit to Recover, and I started seeing, you know, like Rob's Gym and Addicts Fighting Back and all these other programs. I'm like, this is the coolest thing. I told you before we started recording, we're so lucky in Utah because we have these. No other place has what we have. That's amazing. I mean, I think it's cool because, I mean, you're building a community, you're breaking the stigma and you're showing people that they can do hard things. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of, the, of it. And positivity spreads, doesn't it? It Blue? does. It's the best. And, and I think we live in a world where we see negativity spread so easily, but positivity is what people want and mm -hmm. positivity does spread. And so, you know, from efforts uh, that you've made and that other people have made, it continues to spread and... I love the fact that you're practicing the goodness of fit model, mm -hmm. that success is much more the product of how things fit than the things themselves. Some people don't fit great into a 12-step room. That doesn't work for them. Some people don't fit great into one-on-one -on -one therapy. That doesn't yeah. always fit for them. But you're providing another fit for people that realize, like this young woman, the story you just told, like that was the right fit for her. That helped her develop that insight, and it was meaningful. And uh, that's a beautiful thing to provide another fit. One of the my favorite things Casey always says is, you know, there's a million ways up Sober Mountain. So yes. you just have to find what fits and works for you. Yeah. You know, the thing I've been saying to my kids, and they're probably tired of me saying it. And I maybe that's I, good then. Maybe I read it somewhere, <laughs> or I, but I like to believe I came up with it. To me, positivity is a boomerang. You yeah. get it back, you got to throw it out there. Yeah. You know I what like I mean? That. And so just keep throwing it out there because you'll get a lot further in life with positivity than negativity. Oh, absolutely. And, and I try to tell my kids that. I go, you know, it, it's, 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 it's just, it's, it's an easier way. And yeah. it, it, There's research I can give you that backs you up if they want to challenge you. Okay. <laughs> the thing I love about you, Blue, um, is, 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 for a guy who said he was never educated, uh, but now you got a master's degree. Yeah. I mean, you're one, impressive. Of, you're one of the smartest guys I know, oh. you know, and you had the mindfulness at a young age to know that this was a road you didn't want to go down. Um, I mean, I think you're placed on this this planet for big things and I think you're doing them. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I had no idea. And this has been a podcast in the making since we began. <laughs> yeah. I know we've reached out and we've talked, we've tried to get it going, but to have you finally hear and hear your story and all the things, because in the recovery community, Addicts to Athletes always pops up. Fit right. to Recover always stop, pops up. Soar in Ogden pops up. Rob Eastman, you know what I mean? And the, the, the pillars in the recovery community. And you've been one since 2011. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a wild thing. And this is something I've always wanted to do is it's not about me. Uh, my athletes make me look good because they're, they're, you know, they're all doing so much, such amazing volunteerism. We're more now than just even athletics. We do a ton of service. You know, there's got to be balance in everything that we do. And we have just about as many people that can be counted on if a, if a local event like the Salt Lake Marathon or you know, whatever, if they need help, they call us first because they know we can get people there to serve because it's about giving back to the community that they took from. So each month, if they're going to do a, we do a run each month, but we do it for nonprofit charitable. We don't do anything for profit because we want them to give back to the communities they once took from. So if you have a kid that's trying to raise money to pay off a medical bill and you know, we have, you know, 50, 20, you know, whatever, you know, hundred athletes show up, that makes a huge impact on that one little fundraiser. So we give back to the community through showing up for them. And we've been so embraced by 
the, the running community, the athletic community here, it's been kind of awesome to see these bridges that have been built just because they, they're not afraid to talk about it. Like it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a death sentence. We talk about our philosophy on addict athletes called erase and replace. It says if you're going to erase the addiction, you have to replace it with something of greater value. Some things, multiple things. You can't just be a gym rat. You have to also have the, the service aspect, the spiritual aspect. So I said, go to 12 steps for your spiritual. Go to therapy for your, for your personal. Come to addict athlete for the community. Once you start kind of branching that stuff out, like you can have a whole approach to recovery that just covers every base. That's amazing. Yeah. Dr. Matt, your thoughts on Blue Robinson? I, you know, Blue's very well spoken and experienced. I think he's kind of said it all. My, I, I, I love the fact that uh, you're out there finding another avenue for people to live a better life. And I like what you just said: giving back to communities that we take from. And I think that these sorts of programs, especially your program. I hope is helping change the perception of addiction and mental health in our communities. Then I think the first part, the taking from that's all that people have ever really tuned into, you know, versus, uh, you know, we've had people on the show that have talked about breaking and entering to feed their addiction and how that's something they never thought they would do. They're taking from the community. And now hopefully we're seeing that there are these same people in active recovery are giving to their communities. And I think that's one of the reasons we have this in Utah and in Salt Lake and other places don't is because it's spreading. The positivity of it is spreading. People realize we can give back and and be um, forgiven by the communities. And valuable members of society. Absolutely. Like I have said this so many times, you know, I, I work at the University of Utah and I get to work with, I get to do teaching and I get to work with so many wonderful patients. And I've been doing this. This is now my 20th year mm-hmm. here in Salt Lake. And until I started doing this podcast with Casey, I had no idea the positive impact that was happening literally on a daily basis in the Salt Lake community because of people in in the recovery community. Amazing. And so for me, it's just been a wonderful experience to be able to connect with people like you and the people that you train and all the other great folks that have come on our show. So thank you very much. I guess my question would be if uh, somebody listening wants to learn more or get yeah. involved uh, what with uh, addict to athlete, where do they go? Yeah, we have chapters all the way through the state, like from St. George all the way up here to Salt Lake. And so it's kind of a, an easy thing to find if you jump on addicttoathlete.org. The one-stop shop. It's got all of our calendar stuff. In fact, Casey, I got to throw maybe a challenge out to you, brother. In in March, mm-hmm. um, we do this every year. Uh, it's all about James Johnson, our coach out in Vernal. Uh, he's going to kill me if I don't t- ask you to come jump out of an airplane, skydive with us. I'm in. Yeah, this I'm in. March. I'm in. I'll, I'm in. I'll tell him. <laughs> yep, I'm jumping. We, the, he he fundraises for this for the whole year, and he brings a I'll bunch of I'll pay my own in. way. You come down and just be part of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm in. Uh, we do, and it was one of the coolest things we do. We did at the skydive Utah down in, in Nephi. It's gorgeous. So come on down too, Matt. Wanna, we'll, I would we'll, love to come. Josh, could we do a live episode from there? Josh, do you want to jump out of a plane too? <laughs> he says no. He'll he'll think about it. It'll mess my hair up. Overcoming fear. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm in. Let's you tell it. me when we're in. Okay. Sold. We'd I'll love to know. do we'd love to do a show from there. Yep, That'd yep, be great. Yep. And I want to say thank you, Josh. I mean Josh is too. Yeah, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Blue, I want to say thank you for stopping by because uh although it's been a long time in the making, I'm glad it finally happened. And I, I remember one I think our very first meeting about what's the show gonna be like, who are we gonna have on, what types of guests 
addict to athlete came up. Yep. Oh, that's, so that's, I'm, I'm thanks, glad you guys. finally uh, made it and I'm glad we can make this work. And uh, I want to say thank you to everybody out there who continually supports this podcast because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be able to do this. So thank you very much. And uh, in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. Addict to athlete. Nice. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.